0: Our American stories and the Thanksgiving story? Well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the New World began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began. And what it means to us today.
1: They want to hear a Thanksgiving song. Alright. All right. This is uh this is a Thanksgiving song, I hope you enjoy it. Turkey Lurky do and Turkey Lurky Dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap.
2: Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.
3: Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent it's not something that we have been able to commercialize but there's something going on here more than feasting family and football and I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt buckled paper hat what is it about these pilgrims why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the new world they were always viewed as irrelevant weird and different they didn't start a college the Massachusetts colony did that college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention?
4: As I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation I must begin at the very root
3: as with many immigrants their story begins thousands of miles away it is told through the writings of one man who lived it the year is 1607
4: the place Scrooby Manor in North Nottinghamshire
5: England under the flag of religion then said the
4: Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto God, the simple truth in all things.
5: Double vengeance
4: unto them At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain.
3: That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity
5: and purity of the gospel.
2: Oh, Father, who in heaven, hallowed be thy
5: He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607,
3: Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm. But his passion is his
4: faith. And
3: without a prince,
4: two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Um, Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God.
3: One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, Professor of Church History at Oxford University.
6: The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century.
3: But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their
6: own separate congregation
3: that secretly meets in people's homes.
6: In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit.
0: And when we come back, More of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is our American Stories and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England.
3: These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified.
6: They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a Church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because
3: of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England en masse, to leave behind everything that they have known, because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses, So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, Would you want to go?
4: Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Aye, yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland Ah, with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is
5: unpeopled.
4: There are no, no. men there, but only savages who need...
5: This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every year the pilgrims decide to make their
3: home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made they use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the
5: Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell. And this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the new world. About
4: fifty-five Pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The Pilgrims
3: see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called
5: the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures, fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited
3: with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows we refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of songs making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice and indeed it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard and then with mutual embraces and tears they took their leaves one of the other which proved to be the last leave to many of them after three years of planning and preparation two ships The Speedwell and the Mayflower are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding
7: a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire.
3: The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the Pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the Pilgrim's provisions to America, and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon
8: after, the Speedwell has trouble. The master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger
4: William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell,
3: the ships do not turn back once, but two times.
5: Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England?
3: The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speed
5: well. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford
3: writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and
4: get off the ship for good. He also writes, It was judged that the Speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620,
3: fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic.
8: Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were, ultimately, 102 passengers on on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a
5: dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human
8: habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower, was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board.
4: All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us.
0: The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story when we come back that trip across the Atlantic to the new world here on Our American Stories and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic, on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew
3: of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind
4: captain. Bradford writes, Yep, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. What a lot of dribbling
1: cock queens. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing puke stock and beef, farmer
4: going to America. <laughs> 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 you see that quail, lily-loo, little little kicksie-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty able body, which made him Don't the more haughty. He would America. always be condemning the Don't poor people and their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! It's worse than the others. <clears throat>
3: The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and
1: have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck.
5: That people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. <laughs> You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it.
7: One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term
9: effects like high blood pressure.
5: The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer, primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. I'm going to see the
7: ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to rather a lot of beer.
3: The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic and the relentless
4: teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered
3: by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. I see it! Land! But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination.
4: first. dry.
3: On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong.
8: I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says,
4: at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed.
8: And they caught cold and they died.
4: In the harsh winter
3: ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. But the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder
4: in january and february sometimes two and three died in a day bradford calls it the heart of winter
5: it's just a very grim time the biggest toll
3: the most painful toll was by march 13 of the 18 wives die they die keeping their children alive all seven daughters live and 10 of the 13 sons live Somehow, they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful. When they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow, Break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! coming. With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome. Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, have you got any beer the pilgrims are caught flat-footed they don't have any beer they respond our beer is gone would you like some brandy and the answer to no one's surprise is a wholehearted yes as they drink the brandy they discover that this particular Indian whose name is Samoset developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What had said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish and learns to pray every day and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the Pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the Pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections,
4: as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, showing us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing.
5: The fish helps the earth.
4: It's worth feeding our He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies.
0: This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621... Bradford
3: writes
4: about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus, our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice
2: together.
5: They've made peace with the Indians. They had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast.
6: It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path you've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue.
3: Squanto's close friend and Indian chief Massasoit arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set, and the first thanksgiving prayer is said.
4: Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers, and yet, God, Thou hast wrought this peace for us, Thou hast brought us these allies.
3: The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today.
5: They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair. It's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength.
4: Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massa men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor,
2: upon the captain and others.
5: One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect.
4: For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating in native society that's
5: typical as a matter of fact that's probably short did the wampanoags eat the english out of house and home during these three days quite possibly but the english are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality that's how kin treat one another that's what the wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance that's the point of the whole exercise William
3: Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live, despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his
6: pilgrimage. Abel. Enoch. Noah. Noah. Abraham, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They desired a better country, that is a heavenly one, wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God, and he hath prepared for them a city.
3: The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory.
9: We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance.
2: Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays.
3: And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving the Spikyotish family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss.
5: we have gravy?
0: And yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. the mashed potatoes. Sure, after I pass
9: the gravy, okay, we've got sweet potatoes. <laughs> and the turkey. Hey-go. It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday.
6: From Atlantic to Pacific. Gee, the traffic is terrific, Go there. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is on golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure, and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well.
9: Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think that people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them. And just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say we're lucky we have this.
3: What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar.
2: For the holidays you can't beat home, sweetheart.
0: And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon. But it was easier then. Leaving home than losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story, and we share it with you here on our American Stories. and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, and this one for the hour. It's a Stemwinder, and a story you need to know. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by Hillsdale College. Bruised and battered following the long Civil War, the country has emerged stronger than ever. America's growth is nothing short of epic. This is the story of one American man who made it all possible.
1: Gathered here, will now join me in the reciting of the Lord's Prayer.
3: On May 28, 1881, father, Andrew Carnegie's mentor and is heaven. buried on a rainy day, just outside name. of Philadelphia. Kingdom, he God. dies a broken man, defeated power. and humiliated. Forever and ever. Amen. The loss is an enormous blow to Carnegie. Without Tom Scott, Carnegie would be nothing. Andrew Carnegie is born in Scotland in 1835 and flees with his destitute family to the United States at the age of 12 when he turns 15 and with only four years of public education he begins working for a local railroad in Pittsburgh there the self-educated prodigy meets the company's president Tom Scott Andy a few years pass and Scott takes a liking to the young Carnegie, hiring the 18-year-old as his personal assistant.
0: Now, take this and this to the division superintendent. Yes, sir.
5: This is for you,
8: sir. Oh, thank you. Andy is the man of the household. He realizes fairly early on that he's smart. He discovers in himself an ambition, and when Andy Carnegie showed
5: the intelligence, showed the nerve to take on some of the responsibilities. Scott realized that this was somebody to cultivate, somebody to nurture.
3: Tom Scott quickly advances Carnegie through the ranks. Here's Steve Wynn. Like most young people who get breaks, luck has a lot to do with the timing. And the second factor besides timing is that as a young man usually all of us would admit that there was a mentor a benefactor and when an older person who you respect and admire has confidence in you it's a great booster to your own self-confidence by age 24 the 5 foot 3 inch highly charismatic Carnegie is promoted to manager of the company working closely with Scott to oversee the railroads expansion West Scott has an idea that takes Carnegie to the banks of the Mississippi River.
7: The key is westward expansion. Yes, sir. Here. This is where I want the bridge. Right here. I think you can do it. Yes, sir. I know a good designer, James Eads. He's crazy, but he's a genius. Bridge builder, is he? No, but he's quick. And he's cheap, he can do anything.
3: The bridge Scott has outlined will be the largest in America. The problem is, Carnegie has no idea how to build it. The key to
1: success for any railroad is getting across the Mississippi River. Once you get across the Mississippi River, you can move west. The
3: question is, how do you get across the Mississippi River? the bridge will have to be over a mile long. One in four bridges built at the time fail. And nobody has built a rail bridge this big. But Carnegie knows there's no reward without risk. He invests everything he has into the bridge.
5: One striking thing about Carnegie, and this is true of the great entrepreneurs, they're willing to take risks. They're willing to roll the dice and bet In later days, the whole corporation, or in this case, bet his career.
7: It's no good. Why? We can't block steamboat traffic. We've been through this. Show me the cantilever one again. It's not going to withstand the Mississippi current. So make it stronger. It's impossible.
6: The combined forces from the passenger traffic, rail freight and the river current will exceed the tensile strength of iron. The bridge will collapse. Nothing's impossible.
3: Then one day, Carnegie walks into an idea.
7: withstand the Mississippi current. So make it stronger.
3: Maybe if it was made out of steel. Steel is the strongest material ever made. Nothing's impossible. Created by mixing iron with carbon at over 2000 degrees. The problem is it's extremely expensive and difficult to mass produce. Because steel is so rare, It's only used to make small items, forks, knives, and jewelry. No one has ever tried to use steel to build a structure this big, until now. In order to complete the bridge, Carnegie needs to find a way to make a massive amount of steel.
1: He spent a lot of time traveling. He would go to steel mills. He would meet with chemists to figure out how do you make this steel.
3: English inventor, Henry Bessemer, has created a device that cuts the time to manufacture a single steel rail from 2 weeks to 15 minutes. Carnegie understands the value of the new technology and begins to adapt it. With the steel in place, Carnegie is able to begin construction. At just 33, Andrew Carnegie is poised to realize the impossible building the first major bridge to span the Mississippi River, uniting America. But Carnegie's decision to use steel has proven costly. He's already two years behind schedule, and expenses
0: are mounting. And when we come back, the life of Andrew Carnegie. On this day in history, he was born in 1835. This is Our American Stories. american stories and today on this day in history andrew carnegie was born let's pick up where we left off in this amazing story
3: carnegie's decision to use steel has proven costly he's already two years behind schedule and expenses are mounting
5: dear mr carnegie Our records show that we have not received your payment of thirty-five thousand dollars, which was due on. Dear Mr. Carnegie,
6: I am writing to notify you that, despite numerous
5: efforts to obtain final payment
8: for the above invoice, I have been to commence legal proceedings against you.
3: With no money left, Carnegie is forced to bring construction to a halt. His dream has become a nightmare but he's not going down without a fight.
1: I guarantee if these guys were alive today, they wouldn't be telling you about their successes. They'd be telling you about their early failures or the places they almost failed. That's the great motivator, and you have to be able to embrace that. If you can't embrace both failure or the possibility of failure, or the tremendous fear of failure, you can't be wildly successful. It's just, it's an axiomatic truth.
7: I am convinced that steel is the future.
3: Desperate, Carnegie reaches out to investors looking for an infusion of cash.
7: My forecast shows that we will require another million dollars before the year is out. But I have no doubt that in time the people will come to see the bridge as the eighth wonder of the world. Yours sincerely, Andrew Carnegie.
3: Carnegie's last-minute pitch works. And finally, after four years, the bridge is complete. The results are epic, but Carnegie now faces a new problem.
1: In St. Louis, one of the real problems was convincing people that the bridge wasn't going to fall. I mean, nobody had ever seen bridges like this anywhere.
3: Carnegie sees all the possible uses for steel, but before he can realize the material's potential, he needs to convince the public of its strength. And he has a plan to do just that. A popular superstition at the time holds that an elephant won't cross an unstable structure.
1: The day the bridge opens, Carnegie, who is a master publicist, sets up a parade across the bridge
3: that's led by an elephant. It's an incredible gamble, but Carnegie hopes if the elephant crosses, the people will follow. As the people of St.
1: Louis look at this bridge, they see that it
3: can sustain whatever weight's gonna be put on it. When the stunt succeeds, Carnegie gets more requests for his steel than he can possibly handle, and his biggest customer is an industry he knows well. The railroads are looking to replace their iron bridges and rails with steel. But Carnegie can't produce enough of the new material to fill all the orders. He needs to increase his capacity. And to do that, he needs to raise additional funds. So he turns to his old mentor, Tom Scott. With his help, Carnegie raises over 21 million dollars in today's money. And with it, he builds his first steel plant. Sprawled over 100 acres just outside of Pittsburgh, Carnegie's steel mill is the largest in the nation, capable of rolling out 225 tons of steel a day. With the new plant, Carnegie can supply as much steel as the country needs, but Carnegie's timing couldn't be worse. After years of overbuilding, the railroads are suddenly struggling to stay profitable.
5: There were too many railroads at the time there wasn't enough traffic to sustain them
3: with the railroads in dire need of cargo John Rockefeller sees an opportunity and negotiates better rates for shipping his oil but the struggling railroads quickly realize their business won't survive and go back on their word causing Rockefeller to pull his oil from the trains Carnegie's mentor Tom Scott tries to adjust but he can't survive without Rockefeller's oil. His business is decimated, and Tom Scott never recovers. From ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Andrew Carnegie has lost his mentor, the man who meant more to him than anyone else in the world.
0: Andy,
7: you think you can do it? Yes, sir.
3: Andrew Carnegie is on the brink of losing everything. Without the railroads, the backbone of the American economy, he's lost his market for steel, and the nation is thrown into the worst depression it's ever seen. Carnegie blames his bitter rival, John D. Rockefeller. Desperate for a new market, Carnegie notices a trend he can capitalize on. Unemployed Americans by the thousands are flooding cities like New York and Chicago in search of work. And to accommodate the population surge, buildings are being constructed as fast as possible.
1: Carnegie brilliantly begins to see that the future is not in rails, but in structural steel, in girders, in beams to build skyscrapers. And again, he's ahead of the curve.
3: The world's first skyscraper is built in Chicago. Its thin brick walls hang on a thick frame, manufactured from Carnegie Steel. In the next few years, over 100,000 new buildings are erected in Chicago alone. Here's Alan Greenspan.
6: Until steel began to become a major product, uh, much of what we see about America could not have happened. America grew up vertically on steel.
3: Modern America is being built using Carnegie Steel, and the skyscraper boom makes Andrew Carnegie one of the wealthiest men in America. But for Carnegie it's not enough. Carnegie believes that to avenge his mentor's death he must surpass John Rockefeller as the most powerful man in America. And to do that he must find help from someone even more cutthroat than his rival and he knows the perfect man for the job. Henry Clay Frick is a self-made millionaire by 30. He's one of the Midwest's largest coal suppliers. A ruthless businessman, Frick has reputation for getting what he wants, by any means necessary.
8: Follow me, sir.
3: Hiring Henry Frick will give Carnegie the merciless edge he lacks. Carnegie has a meeting with Frick.
8: Henry. Andrew. Good to see you, thank you for coming. It's my pleasure. Please sit. Thank you.
3: Here's Mark Cuban.
8: The partnership between Carnegie and Frick was very analogous to the way a good business partnership works today. You want somebody as completely opposite and different from you as you possibly can get. Welcome aboard, Henry. Thank you,
5: Andrew.
3: Frick's first assignment is to get Carnegie Steel into shape. Many see giving Frick so much power as a huge risk, but Carnegie decides it's a risk worth taking. Our
7: profit margin is unassailable. Our productivity is absolutely as good as any steel mill in Europe or America.
3: Carnegie's steel empire is expanding at a staggering rate. In just two years, profits have doubled. By ramping up production, Carnegie and Frick are able to use the proceeds to buy out competitors throughout Ohio and Pennsylvania. His decision to hire Henry Frick looks like a stroke of genius. Approaching the final decade of the century, Carnegie Steel is more profitable than ever. Carnegie rewards Frick by making him chairman of his company, the second most powerful man in steel. Frick purchases land in the hills east of Pittsburgh. On it, he builds a members-only club for some of the wealthiest men in the country. The South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club sits on a huge artificial lake where club members can boat and fish. To create their club, Frick takes control of the South Fork Dam, which holds 20 million tons of water, the largest dam of its kind in the world. Just 14 miles downriver lies Johnstown, a working class community of steelworkers and their families who live under the constant threat that the next rainstorm will wash away
0: the dam. And when we come back, the last segment in this hour long celebration of Andrew Carnegie's life the good, the bad, and the ugly. Carnegie, born on this day in history, in 1835. american stories and today on this day in history andrew carnegie was born let's pick up where we left off in this amazing story city officials beg frick
3: to strengthen the dam but he ignores their pleas completely
1: i heard there was an accident
8: well you're right
5: there has been an accident i can't get my carrot to cross this road
1: But your carriage is too wide for the road, sir.
5: Now that is where you and I are going to differ. My carriage is just fine. It's the road that's the problem. To widen the road, we'd have to lower the dam, sir. Well, there, now.
8: That wasn't too hard to sort out, was it?
3: By lowering the dam, Frick weakens it posing an imminent threat to the lives of tens of thousands of people in the valley below. Memorial Day breaks in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, 1889, as ominous clouds roll in. At South Fork, lake levels are rising at an inch every 10 minutes. men begin reinforcing the visibly weakened dam with sandbags, but efforts appear useless.
1: John! Get a telegram to Johnstown! Tell him to evacuate!
3: The message reads, South Fork Dam liable to break. Notify the people to prepare for the worst. The Johnstown Telegraph Office has seen the same warning many times before. They ignore it.
2: Let's get out of here, now!
3: The sandbag effort is abandoned. Unthinkable inevitability lies in wait. stops, more than 2,000 people lie dead. One in three are so mutilated they can't even be identified. 1,600 homes are destroyed, and over four square miles of the town are completely leveled. The Johnstown flood is the worst man-made disaster in the United States prior to 9-11. Bodies will be found for years to come, some as far away as Cincinnati, three hundred and fifty miles from Johnstown lawsuits are filed but they're ultimately unsuccessful in the eyes of an angry public Henry Frick has gotten away with murder Carnegie soon drops out of South Fork and begins a campaign to rebuild his damaged image he donates millions to help rebuild Johnstown
1: Carnegie gave money to thousands of libraries millions and millions of dollars Carnegie Wanted to be remembered for the good he had done.
3: Carnegie begins building public monuments across the country. And just two years after the Johnstown flood, Carnegie Hall, New York's new home for the performing arts, has its opening night. Russian composer Peter Tchaikovsky is the featured performer. Andrew Carnegie is treated like royalty, honored for the masterpiece he's built. But even in this setting, one man is a bigger presence. John D. Rockefeller is worth three times as much as Carnegie. But the cathedral Carnegie's built bearing his name takes their rivalry to another level. The men will spend the next 10 years battling each other. Oh, thank you, Alicia. Sparring with Christmas gifts, Rockefeller sends Carnegie a cheap paper vest, a jab at his simple beginnings as a poor immigrant. In return, Carnegie sends Rockefeller, a devout Baptist who doesn't drink, a bottle of fine whiskey.
8: You know, I've had my own little rivalries. I've had a rivalry with Donald Trump where I think it was back 2004, he was giving me a hard time about something. I said, you know what? I could write a bigger check than you and not even know it's missing because I knew if I tweaked him, he would just respond and he did and, and I still like to tweak him just because it's fun.
3: To overtake Rockefeller as the richest man in the country, Carnegie sets his sights on a struggling steel mill outside Pittsburgh. With plans to make it the largest in his steel-making empire, Carnegie invests millions retooling the plant to turn out more structural steel than any other mill of its size. The Homestead Steelworks is a true modern marvel, but it can't operate without manpower.
1: One of the huge costs in a steel mill was labor. Carnegie knew that to stay profitable, he had to keep costs low. And the only way to keep costs low was to reduce wages and increase working hours.
3: With Henry Frick firmly installed as chairman of Carnegie Steel, the boss heads to Scotland for his annual trip. Frick begins squeezing all that he can get out of the workers at Homestead.
1: Frick decided that the only way to keep the plant running efficiently was with a 12-hour day, six days a week. What that meant was intolerable working conditions. No one could work 12 hours a day. If you're working in an office, you fall asleep at your desk. If you fall asleep in a steel mill, you end up dead.
8: You know, back when Carnegie was building his empire, obviously the, there were no labor laws. It was, it was a free for all. And looking back, it seems horrific in a lot of different ways that workers were taken advantage of. But that was the game that was played back then.
3: A small group of men bands together to raise their concerns. Frick sees this resistance as war. He ramps up production, pushing his men harder than ever. In case of a strike, he'll have a stockpile of finished steel. The men are spending half their lives in the dreadful and dangerous conditions, and they're about to reach their breaking point. on the plant floor keep multiplying until one proves fatal.
5: May the Lord in his love and mercy help you.
1: May the Lord the death
3: you has the potential to unite the overwhelmed workforce. Frick knows what's coming. Father, he decides to write a letter to Carnegie. The Holy Spirit, Dear Andrew, I'm not prepared to believe we will win without a severe struggle. I regret to say it does not seem that there is any other course open for us. We would better make the fight and be through with it. Carnegie replies back from Scotland. Henry, one
7: thing we are all sure of, no contest will be entered into that will fail. We all approve of anything you do. We are with you to the end.
0: And when we come back, the last segment in this hour-long celebration of Andrew Carnegie's life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Carnegie, born on this day in history in 1835. stories and today on this day in history Andrew Carnegie was born let's pick up where we left off in this amazing story knowing his boss has his back Frick throws the first punch he tells
3: workers that Carnegie Steel won't negotiate and conditions won't be improving all those in favor of striking raise your hands Frick gives the workers an ultimatum I'm giving you one more chance to call off this strike. I'll make sure any man who walks out never returns. We'll see. 3,500 steelworkers barricade themselves in front of the Homestead plant to prevent Frick from bringing in replacements, causing steel production to grind to a halt. The fight has turned personal. But Frick isn't about to back down. He calls in reinforcements. For years, the Pinkerton detectives have been a private police force, best known for tracking down train robbers. They even stopped the plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln and were hired as the president's personal bodyguards. But now they've become an army for hire with more men and guns than the US military. If you have the money, They'll fight for you, and Frick has the money. We'll enter by the river. Take them by force, if necessary. Remember your training. Follow orders. If they start shooting, we'll hit them back hard.
1: The moment Frick made the decision to bring in Pinkerton's The die was cast, and the only way this strike was going to end was in tragedy. Go ahead, keep going. Hold your ground. Stay calm. Stay calm.
3: The leader of the Pinkertons, Captain Frederick Hind, confidently walks toward the barricaded strikers. We're here to take possession of this property. No! I suggest you turn around and go home. You're not getting in! If you do not stand aside, we will mow every one of you down.
5: the uh, blood of innocent men will be on your hands.
8: Tear down this barricade! No! No! No!
3: No! No! The hostile workers immediately begin hurling fist-sized boulders at the 300 Pinkerton detectives. Fire! When the fighting stops, seven Carnegie steel workers and three Pinkerton agents lie dead. Pennsylvania's governor sends in the state militia to finally restore order. The public is outraged over the violence, blaming Chairman Henry Frick directly.
1: Carnegie isn't happy. He whispers to newspaper reporters in Pittsburgh that if he had been around it would have been different that there wouldn't have been this bloodshed, that he had more respect for the workers. And he undercuts Frick.
7: Andrew? Henry, how are you? Fine. Good. The board of managers met yesterday. I was unaware. The board has decided that it's best if Carnegie Steel invokes the provision of their agreement with you.
3: But the biggest challenge to Carnegie's empire isn't coming from within. A new threat is emerging. J.P. Morgan is a banker who's made a fortune consolidating broken industries, buying out failing and struggling companies and returning them to profitability. Companies like Carnegie Steel J.P. Morgan's years of deal-making have left him with a controlling interest in companies ranging from manufacturing to mining to railroads. One industry brings all those others together, steel. Morgan knows he can't go after Carnegie directly. He needs another way in. So he sets up a meeting with Carnegie's right-hand man, Charles Schwab. How long
7: have you worked for Carnegie?
3: Over 15 years. I am
7: going to buy Carnegie Steel.
8: With all due respect, Mr. Morgan, Carnegie would kill your idea at birth. Carnegie would never sell.
7: Everyone has their price. You just have to find out what it is.
3: Convincing Carnegie to sell will take an astronomical amount of money.
1: Carnegie wasn't going to do any price haggling with Morgan. Carnegie writes down $480 million on a piece of paper. It's the equivalent of $400 billion today, more than Gates and
3: Buffett together. Carnegie has dared J.P. Morgan to buy him out for an outrageous price, a sum that is higher than the entire budget of the U.S. federal government.
7: I have a price.
5: have Carnegie come and meet me tell him the answer is yes
7: I believe that that is the earliest in the day that I've ever drunk champagne
5: congratulations Carnegie you're now the richest man in the world
7: Would you have said yes, Morgan, if I had asked for a hundred million more?
3: Goodbye, Carnegie. For 30 years, Andrew Carnegie has battled John D. Rockefeller for the title of America's richest man, and now he's finally surpassed him. The deal gives Carnegie a personal net worth of $310 billion in today's money the largest private fortune the modern world has ever seen. But on a brisk spring morning, just 12 years later, John Rockefeller joins Andrew Carnegie to mourn the loss of one of their own. Less than a month from his 76th birthday, J.P. Morgan dies in his sleep. While the old rivals once saw each other as cutthroat competitors, now in their twilight years, the fathers of American business have found a mutual respect. For Rockefeller and Carnegie, Morgan's passing is a reminder. Time is running short. And the realization triggers a new contest. No longer is there competition about who makes more money. Now the question is, who can give more away?
1: Andrew Carnegie was not a very popular man among his millionaire friends, because He demanded that the millionaire has to give away all of his money.
3: Carnegie gives away more than 350 million dollars, 67 billion dollars in today's money. Most goes to education and his favorite cause, libraries. Almost 3,000 Carnegie libraries are built in 49 states and around the world. And as World War I breaks out in Europe, the world looks for help. It looks to America. Just 50 years removed from the ashes of the Civil War, America has become a global superpower. By April of 1917, the country enters the war sending troops, supplies, and weapons. Resources that will help bring peace to the world. But those resources would never have been possible without the contributions of Andrew Carnegie a man who sparked a revolution that forever changed America. Carnegie Steel built America up and out, writes Phil Anschutz. Americans traveled west on his steel rails and lived and worked in skyscrapers supported by his steel beams. After King Edward VII visited Carnegie, Carnegie turned to his friend and declared, All Americans are kings. But everyone knows, there is only one king of steel. From a broken country into the most powerful nation on earth. America wasn't discovered. Guys like Andrew Carnegie built it.
0: The cultural and business history of this country is inextricably linked and bound with the political history of this country This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Andrew Carnegie was born in 1835.